Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christoginia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, March 25th, 2017. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight we are going to present part 27 of our never-ending series, The Protocols of Satan. Hopefully we won't get the chance to finish it. Hopefully... We'll see the return of our Messiah in the fall of Babylon first. That would be nice. Somehow I don't hang my expectations on it, that it happens that soon, but it would be nice. This is part 27 of the Protocols of Satan, and it's subtitled, The Nazis and the Protocols. We will actually stretch this presentation out over two weeks. In our last presentation of these Protocols of Satan, we took another long digression to discuss feudalism, its counterpart in the medieval smallholder or independent farmer, and the eventual consequences for the common man in the rise of capitalism and the democratic revolutions of Europe. The average laborer was apparently much more of a slave to his new masters than he had ever been to the old nobility just as the Protocols had boasted. Now we embark on a new point of discussion raised by the Protocols, and that is related to the substance of the democratic constitutions of the newly liberated states. This latest point was raised as we continue to present Protocol 3 from the text of Boris Brassall's publication, The Protocols and World Revolution. Here we will read our subject paragraph once more. Quoting the protocols, We have included in constitutions rights which, for the people, are fictitious and are not actual rights. All these so-called rights of the people can exist only in the abstract and can never be realized in practice. What difference does it make to the toiling proletarian, bent double by heavy toil, oppressed by his fate, that the babblers receive the right to talk, journalists the right to mix nonsense with reason in their writings? If the proletariat has no other gain from the Constitution than the miserable crumbs which we throw from our table in return for his vote to elect our agents... Republican rights are bitter irony to the poor man, for the necessity of almost daily labor prevents him from using them, and at the same time deprives him of his guarantee of a permanent and certain livelihood by making him dependent upon strikes, organized either by his masters or by his comrades. Reading this, There are actually a lot of things that we could talk about in relation to this paragraph. Reading this, we wanted to examine some of the constitutions of 19th century Europe. And we were quite disappointed that, for us, they were practically inaccessible. The Yale Law Law Library offers a reference to a German website which has archived copies of many European and other constitutions but they are only available in facsimile in their original languages. Only publicly available. 
The website is operated by a German publishing firm, Walter de Gruyter, which publishes the work of certain German academics in this area of study. But subscription access to the texts costs hundreds of dollars, while the material is also found in books, which they publish that cost thousands of dollars. Since we do not have access to university libraries, nor do we have appropriate funding, we will have to take other avenues of investigation. Evidently, the study of European constitutions is one academic area that has been given little attention. That probably explains why the original source material, which has been published, is priced so dearly. We do not know much about Max Edling, except that he is the current reader in early American history at King's College in London, part of Oxford University, and has written several books on early American history, with a special interest in the American Constitution. Here is something he wrote in August of 2011 on the topic of constitutions for Oxford bibliographies, which is one of their websites and publications. The age of Atlantic revolutions was also an age of constitution-making. From Chile to Russia, from Norway to Malta, Political reformers were everywhere busy writing new constitutions. An incomplete list includes more than 600 constitutional propositions put forward by political reformers in the half-century between 1775 and 1825. Yet it is only in the United States that constitutions have become an important field of historical investigation. As a result, the literature on constitutional history in the Age of Revolution is almost exclusively devoted to constitutional developments in the United States and the American colonies. Elsewhere, constitutional history is a dormant field. And that's fairly sad because France has had many republics, Italy, Germany, they've had many different constitutions at many different times written over the past several hundred years. He continues and he says that Robert Palmer placed constitutional developments at the center of his Age of Democratic Revolution, a work that was crucial to the evolution of Atlantic history. And there is no question that there was much exchange of constitutional documents around the Atlantic Rim. Yet, as a subfield of historical scholarship, Atlantic constitutional history can hardly be said to exist. One reason may be that the dividends from such investigations are difficult to determine. The adoption or uncomfortable for some people if we determine them, right? The adoption of a constitution says little about the evolution of constitutionalism. That is, the principle that legitimate political action is bounded by constitutional law. In most countries, other than the United States, constitutionalism was established only long after the period that is conventionally covered by Atlantic history. Nevertheless, it is possible to perceive three fields 
of constitutional history that have a bearing on Atlantic history. Imperial history, the international history of the American founding, and the influence of U.S. constitutional principles abroad. This bibliography does not aim to furnish the means for comparative constitutional history. Instead, it provides an introduction to these three areas of inquiry to the enormous literature on U.S. constitutional history. And he goes on to say that because a constitution writing was a central part of the political upheavals of the late 18th and early 19th century age of revolutions, much of the literature on the American, French, and other revolutions are relevant to a constitutional history of the era. If Atlantic constitutional history means an attempt to link the events within nations to the Atlantic world, then the literature is very limited, however. Palmer, from 1959 through 1964, remains the essential starting point for an investigation of the exchange of constitutional ideas. Dippel, in 2005, provides a comparative constitutional history that takes the story into the 19th century. Hunt traces, in 2007, the long-term influence of the French Declaration of Man and Citizen globally. That might be an interesting work to read. Most of the literature dealing with transnational constitutional influences studies the reception of U.S. documents and principles abroad and are listed under U.S. constitutionalism in a wider world. Kirsch, in 1999, analyzes the spread of the Napoleonic Constitution in 19th century Europe. Constitutions of the world from the late 18th century to the middle of the 19th century is an international project that aims to publish not only every adopted constitution, but also those that were drafted but not adopted in Africa, the Americas, and Europe from 1776 to 1849. It maintains a web page and publishes printed compilations of documents. And here at the end of his short article, Edling promoted the website operated by de Gruyters, which we had mentioned earlier. But our point is this that even if we wanted to examine all of the European constitutions to test whether the boast of the protocols rings true in this instance, it would be a very lengthy undertaking. And while this particular author seems to supply a good starting point for these studies in this library at Oxford, there seems to be only a handful of sources available for this subject. But we will discuss this situation further as this series progresses. In the meantime, because it discusses aspects of one historically significant European constitution at length, which is that of the Weimar Republic in Germany, we are going to present a translation of part of the introduction to the 1938 Nazi edition, or National Socialist edition, of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which is from the German Propaganda Archive at Calvin College. We will present a significant portion of this document this evening,
and then present the balance of it on another evening before continuing with our presentation of the protocols. History would have been written quite differently in the event of a German victory. Adolf Hitler mentioned the protocols in Volume 1, Chapter 9 of Mein Kampf, which is subtitled Race and People. There he said that how much the whole existence of this people, referring of course to the Jews, is based on a permanent falsehood, is proved in a unique way by the protocols of the elders of Zion, which are so violently repudiated by the Jews. With groans and moans, the Frankfurter Zeitung, a Jewish newspaper, repeats again and again that these are forgeries. This alone is evidence in favor of their authenticity. What many Jews unconsciously wish to do is here clearly set forth. It is not necessary to ask out of what Jewish brain these revelations sprang. But it is of vital interest is but what is of vital interest is that they disclose with an almost terrifying precision the mentality and methods of action characteristic of the Jewish people, and these writings expound in all their various directions the final aims towards which the Jews are striving. The study of real happenings, however, is the best way of judging the authenticity of those documents. If the historical developments which have taken place within the last few centuries be studied in the light of this book, we shall understand why the Jewish press incessantly repudiates and denounces it. For the Jewish peril will be stamped out the moment the general public comes into possession of that book and understands it. Of course, the proof that Hitler was right is all around us today. If anyone doubts that Jews meddle in the affairs of nations, they should go on YouTube and look up Barbara Spector. And she's only one example of thousands. The translator of this introduction to the National Socialist publication of the Protocols, which we are about to present. Calvin College Professor Randall Bitwork is not friendly to National Socialism, and neither does he believe that the Protocols are authentic, unfortunately. Rather, he accepts the usual excuses and deflections of the Jews that claim that they are some sort of forgery. In a blog post on another website, not at Calvin, where the translator announced his publication of this work. He said that my current project is a study of the uses to which the Nazis put the astonishing forgery, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. That document purports to be the records of a secret Jewish conclave that discussed progress in the Jewish campaign to take absolute world power. It is popular today in the Arab world. Egyptian television apparently did a series based on it. But even in the United States, there are adherents, as if he's surprised. Where he published this introduction to the protocols, he made similar statements in a summary of the background of the document, which we are about to present. 
However, in spite of his biases, we are persuaded that Mr. Bitwork has performed a valuable task in his endeavor to translate much of the National Socialist literature for English readers. He's publishing it under the guise of German propaganda, which is good because it keeps it on the internet and puts it on the internet. However, he doesn't sympathize with the National Socialist cause by any means. Here is his summary and translation. The Protocols of the Elders of Zion is one of the most astonishing documents in history. I would say so, but for different reasons. Although proven repeatedly to be forged, which is absolutely false, it is still widely available today. And many, particularly in the Arab world, believe in it completely. It is supposedly the record of a meeting of Jewish leaders late in the 19th century to review their progress in gaining world domination. And he says that the Wikipedia article on the protocols provides a good summary. At least it does as I write. Although there was sufficient evidence that the protocols were forged by the early 1920s, Hitler took them seriously, as did Goebbels and the Nazi propaganda system. And, of course, in the opening seven segments of our series on the Protocols of Satan, we more than demonstrated, I believe, that there is no evidence that the Protocols are forged, and that there is plenty of evidence from the literature of the secret societies for 200 years, perhaps, and in other instances, even longer than that, of literature produced by Jews or by these secret societies, which is very much the same as many of the things espoused in the protocols. So they are certainly not a forgery. Neither are they the work of the mind of Maurice Jolie. Mr. Bitwork continues, and he says that this is the introduction to the 1938 Nazi edition of the Protocols, published by the Eher Verlag, the official party publishing house. I've not been able to determine the number of copies printed, but since the 1938 edition was the 22nd printing, it was surely in the millions. And his source for this introduction, is a copy of that 22nd edition. I won't try to pronounce the title in German. This is the introduction, translated by Randall Bitwork, to the 1938 National Socialist edition of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. The statements about Jewry's plans for world domination brought together in the Protocols of the Elders of Zion have had an enormous political impact of an educational nature about Jewry. Through them, thousands and thousands of people have been made aware of the corrupting character of Jewish thought and action. They then reach for other writings 
or watch their citizens of the Jewish faith more carefully and find confirmed the basic points of the protocols. Hardly any other book has so aroused the hatred of Jewry, which attempts to destroy or defame the protocols with all available methods. World Jewry attempted to strike a decisive blow against this highly dangerous, incriminating document before a court in Bern, Switzerland. The Swiss-Israelite Federation and the Jewish Religious Society brought suit in July 1933 against a Swiss bookseller who had sold the protocols. The timing of the case alone proves that the Jews were launching a political attack on National Socialist Germany. The same goal was served by a case World Jewry brought before an international court in Cairo, the so-called Cairo Trial, which, like the battle about the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, resulted in a major defeat for the Jews in their battle against National Socialism outside of Germany. The trial about the Protocols ended before the Bern Court on May 14, 1935, after becoming a huge case. Experts were called and Jewish witnesses from around the world testified. Prominent witnesses for the defense, however, were not allowed to testify. The one-sided pro-Jewish nature of the trial found clear expression in the verdict. After all the effort, the defendant, Silvio Schnell, had to pay a fine of 20 francs, and fellow defendant Fischer was fined 50 francs, for distributing an anti-Semitic book. Such small fines were in contrast to the costs of the trial, 27,000 francs, which, after the first trial, were charged to the two defendants. This grotesque difference between the absurdly small fines, when compared to the importance of the legal issue, and the size of the court costs charged to the defendants shows the uncertainty of the judge, and probably the fact that the judge was not convinced of the falsity of the protocols, or that it was immoral literature. We had discussed the burn trials at length from the account given by Dr. Karl Bergmeister in the very first parts of our presentation of the Protocols of Satan. Continuing with our source... The Jews wanted to conduct a propaganda campaign against an against anti-Semitism at the cost of several anti-Semites, and one particularly aimed at National Socialist Germany. They found a judge who, if perhaps somewhat hesitantly, followed their political desires. He ruled in 1935 that the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, Theodore Fritsch's edition, was immoral literature and violated the 1916 law on movie theaters and measures against immoral literature. He banned it in Bern, Canton. We will go into more detail on the Jewish conception of immoral literature later, and we won't get to that portion of this document this evening. Here we need only give the grounds for the acquittal after appeal to the Bern Supreme Court on the 1st of November 1937, to review the Jews' political maneuvering. Judge Peter issued a carefully worded but sharp ruling about the decision by the lower court, 
He ruled that the lower court judge had improperly handled the testimony about the genuineness of the protocols. Since the parties involved selected the experts, confidence in their testimony was shaken. The so-called unbiased expert loosely, L-O-O-S-L-I, that is his name, loosely, who used every opportunity to support the Jewish position, was not impartial. He had already written in a polemic, unscientific manner about the authenticity of the protocols, and one could only assume that the lower court judge was unaware of that. He was warned to be more careful about such testimony in the future. Furthermore, the expert testimony was entirely irrelevant. A possibly forged text was not necessarily immoral literature, and an accurate text could nonetheless be immoral. The nature of the text was determined only by its content and form. Whether or not the protocols was a forgery, as maintained by the plaintiffs, was therefore irrelevant. The only question was whether the protocols was, as claimed, immoral literature in relation to the Byrne court case. The law did not define the term precisely. One probably intended literature of no or limited value that met certain criteria contained in the law. Whether the material was distributed in the hope of making a profit was irrelevant. Even if the Protocols was able to make its readers into opponents of the Jews, it would be going too far to claim that the Protocols encouraged or led to criminal behavior. If there were, in fact, attacks on Jews in Switzerland, it could not be proven that reading the Protocols caused them nor that reading the protocols was likely to encourage such behavior. The court believed that there were other causes. One could not therefore say that the protocols endangered morality. The federal court stated that a text could not be banned because it contained material unpleasant for the Jews. One may conclude from the acquittal that the task of a court is not to determine whether the protocols is genuine or a forgery that we conclude, conclude from the judge's ruling is the task of historical scholarship. World Jewry's political maneuver against National Socialist Germany thereby collapsed. Truth and justice triumphed for a small time. Then we had war. For the Jewish Religious Society in Bern, however, the decision brought back the question of paying for the witness and expert testimony. To persuade the judge of the lower court to turn his courtroom into a center of Jewish propaganda, they had pledged to cover the costs. After the defendants were freed, not only from their fines, but also from the court costs, Burns Jews had to pay themselves for their political insanity of 1933. So much for the trial that brought the protocols to the attention of the world once again in part because of Jewish propaganda itself. Its outcome not only reduced the suspicion that the Protocols was a forged and immoral document, but also made clear that the origin of the Protocols was not a matter to be determined by a court, but rather by historical scholarship. This is a matter worth great effort, but it must be said that outside of Germany, only a few scholars had the necessary intellectual and physical resources, and David Duke isn't one of them.
The majority of scholars are unable to study the matter because for most countries, the Jewish question is raised only rarely because of Jewish power over the press and scholarship. Furthermore, in countries outside Germany, the physical requirements are lacking since studying the history of the protocols is a scholarly task of international scope for which thorough and detailed investigation has to be conducted throughout the world or at least in Europe and America and above all this scholarly work must be conducted in the archives of a country which Jewry has absolute control Soviet Russia why Russia the history and spread of the protocols up to this edition proves why, meaning up to 1938. The oldest reliable evidence of the protocols is contained in a Russian magazine, Snamya, published in 1903. In 1905, or at the latest, 1906, a text by George Butmi titled The Roots of Our Troubles appeared in St. Petersburg. By 1907, the third edition was titled, The Enmity Enemies of Humanity. Besides Butmi, the text was also published in 1905 by the Russian Sergei Alexander Nihilus as an appendix to the second edition of his book, The Great and the Small, The Antichrist as a Coming Political Possibility. Nihilus understanding that the rule of the Jews was the rule of the Antichrist. Further editions of this book appeared in 1911, 1912, and 1917. There is a copy of the 1905 edition at the British Museum in London. The third printing of Nihilus's 1911 edition was translated into German and published by Colonel Muller von Hansen under the pen name Gottfried Zerbeck with his Off-Vorposten publishing firm. The rights were transferred to the Central Verlag of the National Socialist Democratic Workers' Party, Franz Eher, Franz Eher, E-H-E-R, in Munich in 1929, and that's Eher Verlag, the publisher of the original of this edition, which we are now reading from. Since any reasonable person will grant impossibility of researching the origin of the protocols of the elders of Zion in Judified Soviet Russia, we will have to limit ourselves to this introduction to examining the accuracy of the protocols on the basis of evidence provided by the Jews within Germany. We want to choose several of the many individual paragraphs and sections from the protocols for which there is frightening evidence from Jewish literature, particularly from the post-war period, meaning the post-World War I period, that shows how they have been followed and realized. They differ from the statements in the protocols only in form and in changes in language from the turn of the century to the post-war period. The unbiased reader will recognize from these citations that Jewry has worked with even greater force in corrupting the German part of European culture than is evidenced in the protocols. 
During the post-war period, the Jews had unlimited freedom in, your, in Germany, and it seemed to them to be the beginning of Jewish domination of the German people, such as that they displayed openly and plainly their drive for power. Whenever the Jew speaks or acts as a Jew, his statements or acts will be shown to be consistent with the thesis of the protocols. And that's certainly true. Since the betrayal of the German soldiers at the front in 1918, and the resulting beginning of parliamentary domination is at the opening of the post-war period, we will begin with the section of the protocols titled Universal Suffrage. And they quote from Protocol 10. And quoting from Protocol 10, they say, To secure this, the Jews say, To secure this, we must have everybody vote without distinction of classes and qualifications in order to establish an absolute majority, which cannot be gotten from the educated classes alone. And they comment that the history of the World War and the post-war period in Germany alone provides an impressive collection of evidence such that one can speak of strict adherence to and systematic or systemic realization of a carefully thought-through plan. We have to limit ourselves here to a few convincing examples. The overwhelming role played by quote-unquote German Jews in treason and agitation against Germany during the war can be seen in a book by a quote-unquote French journalist titled Behind the Scenes of French Journalism published in Berlin in 1925. In it, a Jewish puppeteer, the American financial Jew Otto Kahn, reveals this dishonorable and filthy business. So quoting this supposedly French journalist, the Free Zeitung was published in Bern, a newspaper of the worst sort, it employed journalists with rather broad consciences, such as Grelling, Rosselmeyer, Fernow, who was a Jew, an editor. Rosselmeyer was a Jew and an editor. Edward Stilgebauer, author of the novel The Ship of Death, which portrayed the torpedoing and sinking of a huge ship in gruesome detail. They were under the direction of the Maison de la Presse in Paris and twisted the facts intentionally, subtly selecting documents and discovering bloodthirsty German atrocities. The Swiss government was powerless. It should not be forgotten that the well-known America, American banker Otto Kahn, a Jew, contributed $50,000 to establish the Free Zeitung. So the Free Zeitung was a newspaper which was charged with producing atrocity propaganda in the closing years or the closing months of the First Great War. And it was financed by the Jew Otto Kahn, at least in great extent. $50,000 was an awful lot of money in 1918. 
Otto Kahn was partners with Jacob Schiff and the Warburg brothers in Kuhn Loeb and Company. Of course, the Jews loved to spread the false report that Kuhn Loeb and Company had financed the Nazis. But here, in a National Socialist publication from 1938, we see that the Nazis had no kind words for Otto Kahn, who died in 1934. Continuing with our source, that is how Jewry worked against a strong Germany that was determined to resist. In Germany itself, the Jews, Alfred Fried, Alfred Einstein, Edward Bernstein, Privy Councillor Witting Witkowski, Wolfson, Siegfried Balder, Magnus Hirschfeld, Dr. Oskar Kahn, Hugo Haas, Kurt Eisner, among whom Maximilian Hardin, whose real name is Witkowski, particularly stands out. Even before the war, they worked so hard to bring down the monarchy. Their racial comrade, Max Reinhardt, said that if one could trace the important events of this period to their origin, one would have to admit that all the threads led to a single man in Grunewald. Whatever the results of the great upheavals of the present may be, later observers will have to conclude that he was their cause. Written by Maximilian Hardin. After the war, and in the midst of Germany's greatest poverty, Hardin celebrated his triumph in an unsurpassable, hate-filled way. I'm sorry, those words were written about Maximilian Hardin. Hardin celebrated his triumph in an unsurpassable, hate-filled way. It, meaning Germany, may regain its rights only when it has the courageous dignity, even before tramps, to admit its injustice, and that was published by Maximilian Hardin in a publication called Zukunft in 1919. Die Zukunft, which means the future, was a German social democratic weekly publication which ran from 1892 to 1923. It was founded and edited by the Jew Maximilian Hardin. Hardin's real name was Felix Ernst Witkowski, and he was born to a Jewish merchant in Berlin. He went to the Lake of Fire in 1927. Our source goes on to say that no worse an infernal monstrosity of Jewish thinking can be found in the protocols. It corresponds to the practical proposals in the conclusion of the London plan to impose war debts on Germany through trusts and the later Dawes plan. Germany's first task, quoting Zuckunft and Maximilian Harden once again, Germany's first task in the consortium, meaning the trusts, as debtor to its creditors, as the defeated to the victors, is to provide all necessary means for building up Russia, experts, technicians, skilled labor, tools, and finished products, which will help it, along with the industry in northern France and English and American commerce, to recover. These facts and evidences give a picture of a widespread Jewish efforts against Germany's will to resist wherever it was to be found. 
It was the preliminary work for the Weimar Constitution, created by the Jew Hugo Proust. It followed the protocol's call to establish the absolute power of the majority, down to the smallest detail. And now you'll see why we decided to present this introduction at this point. Hugo Proust, or P-R-E-U-S-S in its English spelling, it might only have one S and be sufficient, is indeed credited with a draft version of the Constitution that was passed by the Weimar National Assembly and enacted in August 1919. But Adolf Hitler seems to have had a different idea of how that Constitution really came into existence. So he wrote in Volume 2, Chapter 12 of Mein Kampf that it is out of the question to think that a scheme for the constitution of a state can be pulled out of a portfolio at a moment's notice and, quote-unquote, introduced by imperative orders from, from above. One may try that kind of thing, but the result will always be something that has not sufficient vitality to endure which is why all these European states have constitution after constitution after constitution. France is on its fifth republic by the end of the 19th century in less than 100 years. It will, take, it will be like a stillborn infant. The idea of it calls to mind the origin of the Weimar Constitution and the attempt to impose on the German people a new constitution and a new flag, neither of which had any inner relation to the vicissitudes of our people's history during the last half century. So Adolf Hitler, even though Hugo Proust is credited with the Weimar Constitution, with authoring the Weimar Constitution, Adolf Hitler thinks that it was just pulled out of a port- portfolio and slapped down on a table that the Jews already had it written up. And we will talk, that the our authors will talk more about that shortly. In another context, discussing agitation in Bavaria against Prussia, Hitler said in Volume 2, Chapter 11 of Mein Kampf, For the abuse and attacks of the so-called Federalists were not leveled against the fathers of the Weimar Constitution, the majority of whom were South Germans or Jews, but against those who represented the old conservative Prussia, which was the antipodes, or direct opposition, of the Weimar Constitution. And earlier in Mein Kampf, in Volume 2, Chapter 10, which is subtitled The Mask of Federalism, Hitler spoke of disenchantment among the people and the hostility aroused by laws designed to protect an otherwise failed republic from the dissatisfaction of its people, where he wrote in part, The lack of sympathy for the political idea embodied in the Reich is not due to the loss of sovereign rights on the part of the individual states. It is much more the result of the deplorable fashion in which the present regime, meaning the Weimar regime, cares for the interests of the German people. Despite all the celebrations in honor of the national flag and the Constitution, every section of the German people feels that the present Reich is not in accordance with its heart's desire. 
and the law for the protection of the Republic may prevent outrages against Republican institutions, but it will not gain the love of one single German. In its constant anxiety to protect itself against its own citizens by means of laws and sentences of imprisonment, the Republic has aroused sharp and humiliating criticism of all Republican institutions as such. Therefore, it is evident that Germany had its equivalent to the Patriot Act perhaps as many as 95 years ago. Continuing with our source, the introduction to the National Socialist publication of the Protocols. The importance to the Jews of creating new constitutions that affirm the absolute power of the majority is proven by the surprising fact that nearly all German democratic, in quotes, and republican, quote unquote, constitutions have Jewish paternity. The creators of the first Reich constitution were the Jew, Gabriel Riesler, and Johann Jacobi. The former was reorganizer of the Democratic Party of Prussia and spokesman for international democracy, the later one of the most prominent attorneys in the German citizens of the Mosaic faith. And we say that, wow, choking on the words. They, along with their baptized racial comrade, Edward von Simpson, created the first German Reich constitution. That same revolutionary revolutionary year, 1848, the Jewish demagogue Adolf Fischoff prepared a representative constitution in Vienna. It demanded complete freedom of the press, which means the unrestrained incitement of public opinion, the abolition of the death penalty, and absolute majority rule. It was followed exactly in the Republican Federal Constitution of German Austria, which was the work of the Jew Kelsen, and the Weimar Constitution of the German Republic not only agreed with the demands of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, but was prepared by an exclusively Jewish committee. The Jew Paul Nathan published the following details about the history of this Constitution in the newspaper Vorwarts edited by his racial comrade Stompfer, who himself wrote in 1918 that as socialists our firm will for Germany is that it should lower its war flag forever without having brought it home the last time in victory. Late that fall, Hugo Pruss, who usually did pay visits, surprised me by coming to my home and said, and this is still the same Jew who is writing this, the Jew Paul Nathan, Ebert has asked me to draft the German Reich Constitution. Should I do it? And I instantly replied, Naturally, if you are guaranteed a free hand, an hour later, we were with Theodor Wolf of the Berliner Tageblatt, another Jewish newspaper. Soon we were joined by Witting, Maximilian Hardin's brother. And all of us whom Proust had brought together were agreed that Proust, as long as his independence was assured, should agree to Ebert's request and had to do it.
Thus Proust moved from Jerusalemstrasse to Wilhelmstrasse. From Jerusalemstrasse to Wilhelmstrasse? With that began the rule of the Jewish spirit over Germany in the preparation of the Reich Constitution, the law under which all Germans were to live. Knowing these facts, one can understand why the Jews were so happy after the successful German Revolution, as they called the November Revolt of 1918. And going back for a second, those words were written by Paul Nathan. Those final words were written by Paul Nathan, explaining Proust and his meeting with the Jewish editors and owners of these certain newspapers and his decision to accept the task of writing the Constitution, the Weimar Constitution. That was published in Verwartz in October of 1925. Knowing these facts, one can understand why the Jews were so happy after the successful German Revolution, as they called the November Revolt of 1918. In the serious Jewish magazine Der Jude, we find an article not from the pen of a favorite author, but rather from the editors of this magazine itself, it represented a broad circle of Jews in Germany and displayed a spirit absolutely identical with the protocols. And quoting the Jewish magazine, Der Jude, or The Jew, the German Revolution is the first powerful phase of the beginning of the liquidation of war. And this phase shows the scale and effects the individual phases of this liquidation will have. For us Jews... The concluding phase of the war will be of enormous significance, determining the future perhaps even more than the years of the war itself. This statement was stressed once again in an unmistakable sentence. We were not deeply involved in the war. Then followed a genuinely Jewish interpretation of the November Revolt and a prophecy about the post-war period that, as we learned, turned out to be all too true. Enter Jude is quoted again as saying, we will feel bound to it, to the age, and the ideas guiding it, and with the goals for which it is striving. It will set spirit against force, justice against power, peace between the peoples against war between the peoples, and we will know that the Jewish ethos and Jewish pathos are at work, an age of the breakthrough of the Jewish spirit in the world comes once more, an age in which humanity moves forward to save itself. Of course, the Jews don't have a God. How could we stand aside when other peoples are transforming their lives? We will also experience this age in a positive and affirming way, fully aware that we are the children of the prophets." And more precisely, the Jews are the children of the prophets, P-R-O-F-I-T-S. They have no true positive connection to the ancient Israelites. And even a pious Jew should know that he couldn't save himself if there were such a thing as a pious Jew. The truth is that there is no pious Jew and the Jews are their own God. They don't have a God.
the God of the Old Testament, has never been their God. Our author continues, and he says, Hidden behind these general phrases is the claim that, after the work, before and during the war, the future will be a Jewish age. In the following passage, this is said openly in the way that leads us back to the thesis of the Protocols. The collapse of these three powers, this is quoting Der Jude again, in volume 3, published in 1818-1819. The collapse of these three powers, Germany, Austria-Hungary, and Russia, in their old form means that Jewish policy is much easier to conduct. The fact that the same war that inaugurated a Jewish national policy recognized worldwide also led to the collapse of three great powers hostile to the Jews is a unique combination of events that may give one cause to think. In truth, these facts, but also the points of the protocols we have mentioned, agree. And after this and similar statements, yet another point of the protocols is relevant. The policy of hampering the resistance of non-Jews through war and a universal world war. It says, quoting protocol number 8, We must be in a position to respond to every act of opposition by war with the neighbors of the country, of that country which dares to oppose us. But if those neighbors should also venture to stand collectively against us, then we must offer resistance by a universal war. And there we have it. Published 20 years before World War One, and 40 or so years before World War Two. Those three states about whose defeat the Jewish magazine rejoices already had anti-Semitic groups in public life before the war that resisted the Jews. And after the war, these three countries were the first to suffer, and suffer most terribly, as hostages of Jewish communism. Before we go into further points from the protocols, from the same standpoint to see whether they were realized in post-war Germany, we must consider the accuracy of the statement in Der Jude that the coming age, the years after 1918, would be Jewish. The Jew, Lucian Wolf, a leader of the English Jews, had unsurpassed insight into the political activities of his racial comrades. He was also a fairly prolific writer of history from a Jewish perspective. I, I hate to call him a historian. He was a historian, but I hate to call a Jew a historian. It, it's more like a um, a skilled liar who writes pseudo-histories. It, it's hard to call a Jew a historian. With cynical openness... He provided an eloquent, if not exhaustive, insight into the role of the Jews in international politics after the war, particularly those who devised the peace dictate, the Treaty of Versailles. In his essay, in the Jewish Central Press of Zurich, which is the title of the essay, the Jewish Central Press of Zurich, he wrote, 
The great progress of the second decade of the 20th century and its democratic consequences offers the possibility for a significant increase in diplomatic activity on the part of the Jews. During the war, two Jews who followed the example of those of their faith in the 16th and 17th centuries helped to defend against new attacks on Europe's freedom and on the balance of power. Lord Redding and Baron Sonio brought I think that should be Sonino, possibly. Brought about the Treaty of London in 1915 that dissolved the three-party pact and led to Italy's entrance into the war. Other than these two men, we Jews had no leading diplomatic representatives during the war. However, numerous Jews were quickly quickly employed in the newly established intelligence and propaganda agencies that were all part of the foreign ministries that were part of all the foreign ministries I'm sorry since they possessed the traditional broad cosmopolitan vision and could speak other languages a significant but not widely known fact is that none of the warring nations knew how to properly use the Jews. The foreign ministries in London, Paris, and Berlin organized special Jewish departments that concentrated on the analysis of Jewish matters. The history of the competition between these departments with regards to Palestine, which Zionist leaders used so effectively, must still be written. From the beginning, the Zionist leanings of London's foreign office was clear. The head of the new Jewish department, although not a Jew himself, shared, this, shared the name of a cousin who was a famous diplomat, journalist, and writer who was a pioneer of the Zionist idea. The Jewish departments in Paris and Berlin were headed by famous Jewish professors who were, however, lukewarm about Zionism. One was Professor Sylvain Levi, the eminent Sanskrit scholar and current president of the Alliance Israelite Universelle, an organization we've spoken about at great length throughout these presentations of the protocols. And I don't think (laughs) this Jew setting himself up as a Sanskrit scholar is just funny to me. They do it all the time. The other professor, M. Sobernheim, also an eminent Orientalist. The British and French departments have been eliminated, but the Jewish department on Wilhelmstrasse is still functioning and remains under the leadership of Professor Sobernheim. In recognition of Professor Sylvain Levi's services to the his son Daniel Levi was accepted into the distinguished circle of French diplomacy. His, he is currently consul in Bombay. Of course, where he said that we Jews have had no leading diplomatic representatives during the war, Lucien Wolf is being very misleading. We have already discussed how the denizens of Kuhn Loeb and Company, Otto Kahn, Jacob Schiff, and the Warburg brothers, together with their overseas contacts and relatives, acted as a supranational force above all governments of the states that engaged in the war. They were a supergovernment over all the governments involved in the war. The bankers did not need diplomats, except that perhaps 
the Jews sought an appearance of legitimacy for all of their treachery. In the paragraph which follows, there is a parenthetical note informing us that a Jew named Oscar Strauss, Strauss, probably Strauss, known in America as Oscar Solomon Strauss, represented Taft at Versailles. We do not know if the note belongs to the original publication, or to a later editor, or even to the translator. However, Taft was not in any public capacity during Versailles, during the Paris peace talks, and as a still political, still active political figure, Taft was at odds with the Wilson administration at the time over the issue of Versailles. The only senior member of Wilson's House administration, of Wilson's administration, with an official capacity in Versailles, was Edward Mandelhaus. Strauss's career is interesting in other aspects, however. Under Taft, he was the ambassador to the Ottoman Empire in 1909 and 1910. Before that, he served for over two years in the Roosevelt cabinet as Secretary of Commerce and Labor. But even earlier, he was an envoy to the Ottoman Empire for Grover, Grover Cleveland from 1887 to 1889, and Minister to the Ottoman Empire for William McKinley in 1898 and 1899. If Strauss was at Versailles, it may have been with that contingent of Jews led by Louis Marshall, but it does not seem to have been for Taft, whose presidential term ended in 1913 with his election loss to Wilson and his Jewish backers. So, continuing with our source, we will pass over that parenthetical remark. Many Jews were in the background at the conference. Ephemeral representatives of the future state that hoped for recognition from the great powers. Lithuania was represented by the Kalnau attorney, Rosenbaum, who was an assistant to the foreign minister. The Ukraine delegated two Jews, the Kiev attorney, Arnold Morgelin, and Samuel Saraki, a physician who had a practice on London's Whitechapel Road. We find the signatures of a small group of other outstanding Jews on the final act of the peace conference. Baron Sonino, later Earlier there was a type a typographical error and he was Baron Sonio. We will repair that. Baron Sonino signed the Treaty of Versailles for Italy. Edwin Montague for India. Louis Klotz on behalf of Saint Germain for France. August Isaac August Isaac for Trianon and also for France. Several of these Representatives were also signatories to the treaties with Poland, Romania, and Czechoslovakia. The treaty with Poland was signed by no fewer than three Jews, Sonino, Klotz, and Montague. And while the other two main treaties were signed by Klotz. Diplomatic activity by Jews after the treaty can be discussed briefly. Europe, where our author seems to have made a mistake for Germany, had a Jewish foreign minister in the person of the deceased Walter Rathenau. Working closely with him was a Jewish ambassador, the very capable Dr. Lujo Hartman, a historian, 
another Jewish historian, right, who represented Austria in Berlin. In London, Mr. Henry Rabinowitz was Chancellor of the new and fully recognized Lithuania. Until recently, the outstanding Jewish-Russian historian served in the same capacity in the legation of the Ukraine. Another outstanding historian, so our author really doesn't have a bias against Jewish historians, another outstanding historian, Professor Simon Askenazi, is the chief of the Polish delegation to the League of Nations in Geneva. Both the Soviet government and the ephemeral military government that fought the Bolshevist usurpation had a number of Jewish diplomats. The most prominent among the Bolshevists was Litvinov, the former ambassador to Great Britain and current assistant to Foreign Minister Kamenev, as was his successor in London, Radek, who was also the first Soviet ambassador in Berlin. Salkind and Rothstein served as Soviet ambassadors to Tehran. On the other side, the old Russian attorney and senator Vinever served as foreign minister in the government of General Denikin, while the well-known international jurist Mandelstam represented the same government in Paris. And at this time, the White Army, the remnant of the Imperial Russian Army, was still a political force in Russia, where they held the Ukraine and parts of southern Russia until 1920, and also held much of far eastern Russia until 1923, Denikin was commander of southern Russia from 1919. So here we see that Jews even infested the opposition government in Russia, like they should have known better. Continuing with our source, in addition to those named above, others who should be mentioned include Judge Abraham Elkis of New York, former American ambassador to Constantinople, Mark Hyman of New York, general counsel of the U.S. Shipping Board, Max D. Kurgisov, American counsel in Manchuria, and the American consul Samuel Sale and Samuel Sokobin in Kalgan, China. Furthermore, there was Jacques George Nunberg, first secretary of the Polish embassy in Bern, and Mylan Schwartz, southern Slavish consul in Zurich. There were also several prominent Jews among the delegates to the League of Nations. After this overview of the Judification of Diplomacy from a professional Jewish pen, referring to Lucien Wolf, there can be no doubt that during this period Jewish ethos and Jewish pathos were at work and that the leadership of world affairs was almost entirely in the hands of the children of the prophets, which is basically not true that the Jews are the children of the prophets. I can't help but protest. During the post-war period, Germany experienced the realization of another point of the program, the Constitution as a School of Party Discord. And then quoting Protocol 10. Liberalism replaced self-government by constitutional states, which the Jews saw as their goal. And our translator says that this is a misquotation, as the text has Gentiles rather than Jews. But it's clearly 
a misreading by the translator. And we'll explain this. We will explain that shortly. A constitution, as you well know, is nothing but a school of discords, misunderstandings, quarrels, disagreements, fruitless party agitation, party whims. In a word, a school of everything that serves to destroy the personality of state activity. And the actual paragraph in question from Brassall's edition reads, Constitutional governments were born of liberalism, which replaced the autocracy that was the salvation of the goys. For the Constitution, as you well know, is nothing more than a school for dispute, discussion, disagreement, fruitless party agitation, dissension, party tendencies. In other words, a school for everything which weakens the efficiency of government. But the way it is presented in this introduction is just a paraphrase. There was probably a missing quotation mark, since the statement is certainly accurate according to the protocols themselves, as well as other writings of the Jews, that the replacement of self-government by constitutional states under a monarch was replaced by liberalism, and that was the Jewish goal. They wanted to break down the nobility and replace it with liberalism and constitutional states. And as we see here in the protocols, the Jews were writing all of the constitutions in Germany during the 19th century and the early 20th century as our authors attest. So the protocols are not vainly boasting that they had put assurances into the constitutions by which that they would be able to undermine the stability of governments and rule over the people. Our author goes on to say that this development could already be seen at the turn of the century. The Jews had a leading role in founding all political parties. Of the parties that they founded or helped to found and controlled down to the smallest detail, we will name only the National Liberal Party, one of whose founders was the Jew Edward Lasker, the Free Thinkers Party, one of whose founders was the Jew Ludwig Bomberger, the right center at the National Assembly in Frankfurt, founded and led by the baptized Jew Edward von Simpson, and finally the Democratic Party in Prussia, which was reorganized by the Konigsberg Jew Johann Jacobi. At the same time, in Vienna, we find Adolf Fischoff, spiritus rector of the Democratic Party, who for a time during the Revolution of 1848 had the fate of Vienna in his hands as president of the Security Service. The Conservative Party of the pre-war period was founded by the Jew Friedrich Julius Stahl, who let himself be baptized. He built the intellectual foundation of Christian conservative political thought. He was also the leader of the conservative faction in the upper house and had a central role as member of the Evangelical Church Council, a converso Jew, running the church and the political party. (laughs) 
the strongest centers of Jewry's corrupting power are two other two Marxist parties. In the history of the General German Workers Union, led by the Jew Ferdinand LaSalle, one can note that the Social Democrats and the Communist Party have the same father. Karl Marx Mordecai, whose Jewish nature, in both his works and person, was accurately characterized by a Jew in this manner. His spirit found a direction that forever overcame all supernatural forces because he showed how they were bound to the physical world without realizing it himself. He became in his deepest self a Jew in tradition of the prophets. But none of the prophets were Jews. Or the Bible would have been a banking and economics manual rather than a book reflecting an agrarian society and espousing all of the morals which the Jews have forever despised. Our author simply accepts the boasts of the Jews at face value. And he continues by saying that not only was the theoretician and founder of Marxism a Jew, but Jews are also the best-known Marxist practitioners, whose deeds will forever be among the most terrible atrocities in history. We do not need to search for the names, but only refer to an essay by the Jew George Herman, in which he celebrates the atrocities as a revelation of Jewish nature, as a Jewish contribution to the history of humanity. And quoting George Herman, I hear Jews say nervously, they hurt us, that it is not good, it leads to bad blood. To the contrary, let us be proud that a Marx, a LaSalle, a Singer, a Rosa Luxemburg, an Eisner, even a Haas are Jews. They represent the ancient human soul for our tribe better than any religious renewal is able to do. Let us cheerfully admit that also in Russia, in Hungary, many of those, whether they are correct or not, I do not dare to say, many of those who seek to bring the oppressed, miserable masses to a new, better, humane forms of life, a Trotsky, a Bella Kun, are Jews. They only prove that human thought is best advanced by the Jews. And there's a citation to a book in German supplied, which supports that, and a link to Google Books, which has that, that which has the record. George Herman, the author of the well-known novel Jetchen Gebert, Yetchen Gebert, was fully aware of the significance of his words that he directed to his racial comrades in a Jewish magazine. In another work from the same time directed to the broader public of the German people, his Randbemerkungen, published in Berlin in 1919, he presented himself as an opponent of nationality. And in a statement directed to the Germans, he wrote, We must finally learn to put humanity above nationality. There's nothing new under the sun. So we see that the Jews have always played the card that they play today, to pretend to be white when they want to lead whites astray and to be nationalistic Jews when they are addressing Jews. The internet is now full of memes exposing the blatant hypocrisy of this aspect of Jewish behavior. The trait is identified 
and further discussed in our source as we continue. At the same time, he glorifies Jewish communist murderers like Trotsky and Bela Kun in a Jewish magazine as real leaders of modern Jewry. He tries in another work to take away from the German readership its faith in its great men. And they quote him again, and he says, Humanity would be better had it never known its great statesmen, generals, and rulers. Without great men and without great ages, it would have been much better off. Socially and culturally, it would be 5,000 years ahead. And that's on page 90 of the same book by George Herman. That is only one brief example of many that provides a look at the school of discord that the Protocols proposes as a means to the end, referring to the making of constitutions. The Marxist Jews promoted class struggle within the people, subverted national powers of resistance and public morality, while intellectual Jews, who pretended to be nonpartisan, saw to it that Jewish unity was preserved. This wicked double game that praised Jewish Marxist atrocities on one hand, while subverting and weakening Aryan peoples by inciting one group against another through carefully prepared slogans, is well founded in the plan found in the protocols. And the original text has non-Aryan here. However, I believe that's a typographical error or an error of the translator because it would make no sense. One can take the following passages and translate them from the language of the turn of the century into that of the post-war period. And quoting Protocol 15, They have never yet, and they never will, have the sense to reflect that this dream of equality is a manifest violation of the most important law of nature, which has established from the very creation of the world that one creature is unlike another, and that personality plays a decisive role. If we have been able to blind them in this way, it is amazingly clear proof that their minds in no way measure up to ours. That is the guarantee of our success. And isn't that true? And we still see that very thing going on today. And we still, as a race, we still fall for it. Because we have a quality which the Jews do not. And that is altruism. Altruism. Our altruism makes us suckers. They continue by quoting protocol number three in this same aspect. The word freedom plunges human society into a battle against all powers, against the power of God and that of nature. When we sit on the throne, meaning the Jews, we will erase this word from the human vocabulary because it is the very principle of brute force that turns the masses into bloodthirsty beasts of prey. These beasts, it is true, fall asleep after they have enjoyed their blood and can then easily be chained. If they are not given blood, however, they do not sleep, but rather fight. And that's from Protocol 3, from a paragraph we have not yet presented here. Or, Protocol 10 again, and a very short quotation, It is from us that all engulfing terror proceeds. And of course, history of the last hundred years certainly proves that to be true. September 11th should be one ready reminder.
our author asks, could the theory and practice of the Jewish rulers of Russia and the Comintern during the post-war period, and which they are doing today in Spain, be better expressed than they were at the turn of the century, meaning when the protocols were first published? It would go beyond the bounds of this introduction were we to spend more time on the Jewish policies of the Marxist parties or list the actions and statements of the Jews that prove and justify the historical accuracy of these citations from the Protocols. Let us compare another thesis from the Protocols with historical facts. Regarding Jewish domination of the press, it says in Protocol 12, No news will reach the public without our approval. We have already practically reached this goal, since the news from the entire world flows through a few news agencies, where they are processed and only then sent on to the individual editorial boards, agencies, etc. And they conclude, this section of of our presentation concludes with one more paragraph from our authors. The extent to which the source of the international press system was judified, even during the pre-war period, is proven by looking at the three leading world press agencies. All three were founded by Jews, and the two that survive today are still fully Judified. The French agency Havas was founded by the Jew Charles Louis Havas. The English Rooters by Josephat Beer, the son of a rabbi, who later added the name Ruder while the now-defunct Wolf Telegraph Agency in Germany was the work of the Jew Bernhard Wolf. We have already discussed these three news agencies and the Jews who founded them at length in earlier segments of our presentation of the Protocols. When we return, we will resume at this point in the National Socialist Introduction to the Text. I believe we have, in part, because we are going to, or will hopefully present more data, to establish the fact that the Jews did indeed dabble in the creation of all the constitutions of the parliamentary democracies of Europe. They had their hand in all of them. And they finagled all of them. So the boast in Protocol 3 here that the Jews have left holes in all the constitutions by which they could subvert every single one of these nations, these so-called democracies, is not vain. It was not made in vain. The Jews wrote this in the 1890s. It espoused ideas which they had been carrying with themselves for hundreds of years, and they executed them. And the history of the 1900s, the history of the 20th century, certainly demonstrates that they were able to execute them, without a doubt. The American story is a little different, and we will get to that in just a couple of episodes. But in reality, it's really not different at all. The the American founders didn't make a constitution any better. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of true Israel. And thank you for listening. Good night.